Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. Today, I have an interview with Dr. Eric Ernest. He is the medical director for the state of Nebraska. He's also a professor at the University of Nebraska, has a whole bunch of different hats that he wears for EMS response models out there. We talk a lot about rural EMS response models, and he also has some interesting insights into automated CPR devices and uh, different crew components, which is something we're going to be talking about a lot more on the show. So take a listen. Let me know what you think, and I'll talk to you after the interview. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Um, on the line with us, I have Eric Ernest. He is the associate professor for the University of Nebraska Department of Emergency Medicine, the state EMS director for the state of Nebraska. He's also the medical director for Bellevue Fire Department, assistant medical director for the Omaha Fire Department, and Crichton EMS Education. You've got uh, quite the resume there, Eric. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. A little bit of a hand in everything, I suppose. <laughs> just trying to have a finger in every pot, just running the entire state. That's right. That's um, right. So, Dr. Ernest, the reason that I wanted to talk to you and we want to have you on the show was we've talked a lot about um, more urban and suburban EMS, but we really wanted to get the point of view from rural EMS. So I want to kind of start sort of broad and then work down a little bit more granular. What do you think or what do you see um, are maybe the misconceptions that people have about rural EMS versus suburban or urban EMS? Well, I think that's a great question. I, I want to thank you for having me on your podcast, and I, uh, I appreciate you guys reaching out and would love to share at least our uh, local experience here to the, the Midwestern state of Nebraska. Um, I think it's an interesting question when you compare rural versus uh, an urban system, and I think a lot of the focus when you uh, look at, the, say, the national organizations like NEMSP, uh, ASEP, uh, even the national EMS organizations, a lot of focus does revolve around urban uh, EMS delivery. And when you think about, you know, a lot of the big uh, progressive things. I mean, you know, for instance, like putting a stroke ambulance into service or uh, some of the things that, you know, uh, ECMO in the field uh, or on the city streets, th things that are kind of the, that cutting edge, the bleeding edge of uh, uh, EMS really does transpire in the urban area, which makes an interesting dichotomy. I think it's a little bit flipped when you think about uh, urban versus rural in the sense that when you're in the rural area, uh, you know, people that suffer from the same types of uh, ailments, uh, injury, trauma, uh, cardiac or cardiovascular disease, things of that nature. Um, and really the challenges uh, are amped up that much more. And, you, and in my humble opinion, it's almost like, you know, you have all these great resources within the urban area to serve a large population. But really when you think about, you know, the, the transport time, uh, at least in a major city, you know, probably anywhere from five to 15 minutes by ground. And really, you know, your time spent with the patient and really having to manage something for a prolonged period of time is really minimized unless it's a, you know, uh, you know prolonged on-scene time or something like that. Uh, whereas in the rural area, I think it's a, it's pretty interesting in the sense of, you know, that, that say, like a COPD patient where, you know, you get your initial treatment, you maybe start, you know, nebulizer therapy, something of that nature. And, you know, you may not even get through all that by the time you arrived at the hospital. Right. And I compare that to an, age, an agency that I have in a rural area. Um, and, and so just to give a little bit of background, I actually serve as a medical director for um, kind of a hybrid program within a rural county just to the south of us, uh, to the, the south of the Omaha metro, where it's pretty much staffed all by volunteer fire-based EMS. And we actually started up a paramedic fly car type model where we are actually a non-transport agent, but we go and we support the rural volunteers. And I remember a call that uh, we weren't able to get an ambulance on scene, and literally our paramedic uh, was on scene with this bad crashing CO 
COPD patient for almost 45 minutes, nearly burned out his entire oxygen supply, uh, and was really stuck with a very critical patient for you know a, a very prolonged period of time, which most uh, EMS professionals, when you think about the urban areas, don't have to deal with someone that far into their disease process or being on scene with it for that long. And so really some of the resources and things that you need uh, in the, the rural areas, whether you're looking at the EMT level or the paramedic level, uh, can be quite profound. And I think, you know, where we focus our money, our attention, training, things of that nature, uh, is in the area that probably has uh, abundance of resources, whereas the rural area does not. So a um, little a bit of a flip and dichotomy there of uh, between the rural and the urban. Right. And I, I, would do, I do want to talk about the crew component um, aspect of it, because that's something that we're going to be discussing in a couple weeks yeah. on the show. Um, but do you think that the EMS or the medics that you have because of the transport times and things like that, they might have more mm-hmm. freedom to operate in a rural setting as compared to an urban setting? I do. I, I think in it, you know, and obviously we all have to operate within the scope of practice of, you know, what what's defined by the state and the rules and regs. But I mean, some of the the treatment protocols, when you think about, you know, prolonged cardiac care, um, the use of aeromedical and how that gets involved, especially if you're in an area where say, uh, you know, uh, weather can be a factor. Um, you know, how do you get someone who is having an acute stroke and say has a high race scale, or whatever pre-hospital scale you're using uh, to suggest like large vessel occlusion? You know, what are you doing with that patient? Um, you know, we're not quite to the point of uh, being uh, daring enough to be pushing TPA uh, pre-hospital, but it definitely affects our transport decisions. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not always as clear cut as it, I think it is in the urban areas. Is, is there a point where you find that your providers have to make decisions to, say, fly a patient um, for medical cases that is disproportionate to uh, an urban or suburban area? So I think, at least in the area that we operate, um, the the rural county kind of sits between two large uh, metropolitan areas. So the the ground and air times, depending on where you are, can almost be equivalent by the time you actually get on scene. Say you do want a helicopter, they you know dispatching the helicopter, the spool up time, landing time, packaging time, all those types of things. Um, you can almost, if you're to do kind of a more scoop and run type of a thing with the ground ambulance, assuming you had one, um, can almost be equivalent time wise. So so there, there is some of those where it's kind of like, uh, should I go air? Should I go ground? Um, and really leaving the, a lot of that discretion up to the paramedics or you know even some of the EMTs that you know within this county system that we're talking about. I also oversee a lot of the volunteer agencies, um, and really giving them a lot of uh, leeway as to their transport priority. But um, like anything in medicine, I, I tell them that aeromedical is just like any intervention we do. It has risks, benefits, alternatives, and that we really have to be making that decision in the best interest of the patient. Um, and there's definitely been times where you know say it's a trauma, you know the Ground time to a trauma center is about 20 minutes, and it's like, well, gosh, you know, the the previous kind of knee jerk reaction was, oh, well, it's a bad, you know, rollover or something like that, so automatically call the helicopter, which not a bad idea, to put it on standby, but you know, especially with having our medics out there and doing some education and training to say, you know what, you guys are going to do a vast majority of what they're going to do on the helicopter, and actually, if you can get rolling on the ground, you're actually going to save some time versus uh, trying to get a helicopter out there. So it, it's definitely a balance, and there's times where we've certainly used air medical. Uh, for cases that, uh, you know, uh, we can't travel fast by ground, it's in a remote area, things of that nature. So it really is kind of a balance between the two delivery models. Right. So one of the things that I think we tend to focus on um, in pre-hospital medicine is there's a lot of focus on dispatch to arrival, um, time on Mm -hmm. scene, transport times, things like that. How does your environment affect those response times and those transport times? 
Well, uh, just by the sheer nature of where we are, I mean, definitely uh, is longer. Um, what is interesting is that, especially uh, now that we've put kind of this fly car model into play, looking at some of the dispatch to arrival times of the previous volunteer system, and, and I think uh, on a quick aside, um, you know, if you look at volunteer EMS delivery across the United States, I think, you know, we're, we're in a fairly large crisis right now where we have this dwindling um, – population of volunteers absolutely right and really and really you know the the response times especially during the middle of the day uh, are certainly uh lengthy to begin with and then certainly you know if we're going two or three pages mutual aid etc whereas once we have someone who is staffed 24 7 within the county who also provides a higher level of care we've definitely see a downtrend in the uh total you know like the dispatch to arrival time um and also, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon, I'm not saying the paramedics are are everything to this equation, but we do find that uh, when the paramedics are going to a call, that we tend to get a little bit better turnout uh, from the volunteers. Because I think there is a certain uh, aspect where, you know, say it's, it sounds like, a, you know, medically complex call or a really, really bad trauma. And say you have a young or a inexperienced EMT who's also a volunteer who may not have a high call volume under their belt, um, that, you know, maybe a little bit of hesitancy to kind of go out there if they don't know that there's other people coming. So knowing that they have a crew coming along with them, uh, we've definitely seen a little bit of an uptick in the uh, the volunteer response rate as well. Absolutely. And I tend to think, and this is something we've discussed on the show previously, where you'll have volunteer agencies will hear, you know, like the sexy calls go out where it's, you know, multi-car right. VA, those kind of things, they tend to turn out for that. But the 2 a.m. Yep. Uh, asthmatic is, you know, not to say that it's a boring call, but volunteers, volunteers are kind of a little bit more difficult to get out for that. Um, which is certainly right. something that we see in our area. Um, and I imagine it's kind of the same kind of everywhere. It is. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it's, 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 I don't know if you want to call it entertaining or sad or whatnot, but you're right. I mean, you got the, the septic nursing home patient, uh, or a lift assist and you know, you go three calls in and mutual aid and everything else. And a wreck on the freeway, you get everyone and their dog and their right. family out there <laughs> trying to help. And it's like, well, wait a second, the other call was 20 minutes ago. So just the entire County became available within that time. All so, of a sudden, yeah, they all got uh, work at that moment. <laughs> And I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting looking at um, the volunteer EMS system. And, and, and when I say this, in no way knocking volunteers, because I think it's a, it's a great, and I oversee volunteer agencies, I think it's a ne needed part of uh, rural areas. But sure. the idea that uh, when you look at all the healthcare delivery, whether it be nursing, physicians, uh, PAs, all, all the spectrum of uh, healthcare practitioners, you don't find a lot of volunteerism other than, you know, if you're going outside, say, you know, going doctors without borders or something of that nature but you know there's no volunteer you know nurses at a major metropolitan hospital i mean right. the vast majority of the healthcare profession is paid and then you look at ems and we still rely heavily on this volunteer model and, and some of the projections at least that we've done in our state which is a, a large rural state uh, you know, we're talking about millions of dollars in volunteer labor when you look at it and the state really not wanting to come in and say, you know what, this, we, you know, as we have this dwindling population, what are we going to do to support that? And I can't imagine that Nebraska is unique to that situation where, um, you know, the, the states uh, rely heavily on that volunteer labor and realizing that, uh, that volunteer labor is, is quickly dwindling and we need to come up with some kind of model, which I know they're working at on the national level and groups like NAMSP and whatnot of how do we sustain and support our volunteerism, but at the same time being able to deliver high quality medical care to the rural areas. 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I feel like, and this is the first time that you and I have spoken, but I feel like I've had this exact conversation with a lot of people from all over the country. So Mm -hmm. to your mind, do you think that the dwindling volunteer population, is that more of a, are are people just aging out from it? Do you think it's a financing thing? What, What do you, what do you think might be the central component to that? Well, I think, you know, looking at some of the studies, and I, I just got back from a, uh, a Minnesota Medical Directors Conference, which um, I, I frequent on a regular basis, and they did, they had done a study in their state, and there's been other studies in similar um, circumstances with other states that look at some of these factors, and certainly, you know, um, uh, the the age and ability to just uh, physically function, the, the role is certainly a uh, factor. Um, compensation or being uh, pulled away from your uh, town or city of origin because you have to leave to go do a job someplace else. Um, some of the uh, regulations, uh, at least for initial education as well as continuing education, um, you know, th- those can all be barriers. Um, and when you think about, you know, what used to be a, uh, you know, they talk about, you know, the 80 hour class or something like that, you know, several decades ago, you know, those classes are becoming longer and longer, even for the entry level EMT. And then you look at the continuing ed hours. I mean, and really, if you're not getting any compensation and grand, there's states that have, you know, things where they'll reimburse you for your initial class and whatnot. But um, all that, t- all that takes time and money. And, uh, you know, in, a, in an ever changing world with more and more, uh, uh, <laughs> things tugging at our time, I think, uh, maintaining the competency to do the job and do it well, unless you're on a paid department on the side, uh, you know, being a volunteer EMT is, I, I think, a difficult thing to maintain. Um, so, you know, and, and, and I have agencies where uh, I have people that are, that are so old in the, in the agency that they say that I literally can't, they literally can't carry their own equipment, that they have to have other people carry their equipment. But that there may be one or two, there, you know, uh, you know, there may be two or three EMTs on that department and that's it. And that person happens to be one of them. So it's like, well, do we cut our, our ranks in half or by a third or do we let this person still function and other people help them out? I mean, so really it, it's becoming more and more dire as, uh, as the time goes on. And so, and that was really what we were trying to do with the, kind of this hybrid model. And certainly it's not unique to the United States. I know pl- other places are doing it, but, you know, looking at these hybrid models of how can we support the volunteer system? And unfortunately it does cost money to put those things in place as does any healthcare delivery. Uh, but really being able to get out there and uh, support the rural communities uh, with good quality health care. Right. And that's one of the, the more interesting things is that there was a time, I think, that people could dedicate to volunteering on an ambulance um, for, an, for an EMS agency. And now it seems that, you know, people have they've gone from having eight hour work days to 10 or 12 or 14 hour work days. And Certainly. It's very, it's very difficult Certainly. to get on the truck after that. So I, yep. I do want to talk about the, the uh, crew component that you were talking about. Um, expand, yeah. expand a little bit more on the, the hybrid paramedic program. So uh, the, as a background, sure. I've, I've worked in two medic systems and I've worked in uh, one medic, one EMT systems. For a long time, I was very um, opposed to one medic, one EMT until I worked in a one medic, one EMT system. So there's a lot of debate as to what the proper crew component is because two paramedics <laughs> cost more money than one medic, one EMT. Um, yes. And that's everything kind of comes down to money. So expand on your project a little bit um, with the one medic sure, response sure. model because I think it's very interesting. Yeah, so actually our crew is uh, composed of, and they <clears throat> right now due to our finances, we only staff one crew at a time uh, for a 12-hour period, then they switch into the night. And that crew composition is one paramedic and one EMT. 
Um, and so, you know, I agree with you. I mean, you could go back and forth all day as to what the ideal model is. Um, I think if you're looking at like a busy urban EMS system where, um, you know, it depends on how you're doing your calls and who's taking primary care. Um, if the paramedic is always taking primary care and you're running 13, 15, 17 calls a day or higher, uh, being able to swap back and forth, I think certainly helps with some of the fatigue and burnout issues. Um, now some would say, you know, if you had a good EMT and, you know, not all calls calls are ALS and so do you need really need a par, you know a paramedic running every call certainly those are all valid arguments um, so in in our situation it does boil down to money I mean to, to staff two paramedics at the same time versus a paramedic EMT um, you know it, it's working for us and also our call volume is such that I don't think we're burning our paramedics out um, you know they may run you know anywhere from oh, a couple of calls up to five six calls a day uh, tops um, but to think you know that may sound like a low number to some of your listeners and especially someone coming from an urban system uh, but when you think about the time that they are on their calls from the initial dispatch until they actually get back to the station they could be gone for an hour and a half I mean it's 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 a considerably longer period of time with the patient uh, to get to definitive care and then to get back you know to into your service area so um, you know, there's some difference and nuances in that. But, you know, when it comes to crew composition, at least having uh, a paramedic EMT, what that also allows us to do is that if it is a BLS level call uh, or something that an EMT can handle uh, and say, you know, the responding agency that's volunteer, you know, they have a driver or maybe just one other EMT, we can send our EMT with them for a basic level call and keep our paramedic in service within the county. And vice versa, if it's an ALS level call, the paramedic can go as long as there's enough help and keep the EMT in the county as still a first responder type person that could go out and help staff a call uh, should another call drop within the county. So it, it gives us a little bit of flexibility. Um, you know, ideally we'd have more crews to, you know, cover, but, um, you know, finances and otherwise, I think the paramedic EMT model, at least for our local jurisdiction, seems to work pretty well. So just to, just to clarify, you have one medic, one EMT and a fly car and mm-hmm. you meet up with a volunteer agency. Yep. Then. Okay. Correct. Have, have you found when, because the, the first argument that, uh, at least in our area that I always hear come up is, well, what if they have to split? So in, yep. in your yep. area, have you found that there's been a significant delay if the medic and EMT have to split or do they typically just meet up in the hospital and then just go about their day? You know, it, 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 it's highly, highly variable. So um, if they do split off one or the other, um, usually the one who's not going uh, will stay with the truck uh, and usually will keep that truck within the county limits in order to be able to respond to a second call if it drops. Um, and then that responding agency who took one of our crew members, uh, when they come back in the county, they'll either rendezvous at a certain point or they'll drive them back to the station, whatever is kind of, they'll kind of work that out. So, um, you know, and there's some situations where we will literally, uh, sometimes these volunteer agencies, they'll only have like a firefighter driver and we'll have to send our entire crew, you know, the, the medic and the EMT, right. uh, to be the, the sole care providers on the back of that ambulance. And we just leave our fly car somewhere in the County and, you know, we'll have to come pick just, it up later. Just so. go back and get it eventually. <laughs> yep. Yep. Just park it. You know, we've, we've parked on the side of the highway. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been all sorts of places, uh, but you know, they get back to it eventually. So. So one of the when we t- and we talk about cardiac arrest a lot um, on the show and it's you know always a hot button topic in EMS and mm-hmm. one of the biggest things that kind of gets talked about a lot or brought up is the time to respond 
um, you know, times to actually the hands-on compression. So there's some debate yeah. as to whether a response of less than eight minutes will reduce mortality. And I wonder what your response to that is and how you handle that in such a big response area with such a low crew component. Well, I will say um, the rural area is probably the worst place to have a cardiac arrest uh, in the sense that, you know, you, the, the old adage about 10% drop in survival for every minute without hands on the chest is, is probably close to accurate. Um, what we do is uh, we definitely work with our dispatch uh, center to try to get hands-only CPR uh, by the caller. Um, that does not always pan out. Um, it was due to a variety of reasons, whether they're just physically unable to move the patient or, you know, they have, they just can't do it themselves. Um, so we really try to focus on the dispatch, uh, part of that. Um, and then if we are close enough, um, we, we were fortunate enough through the Helmsley foundation, which is out of South Dakota, uh, to receive basically a statewide grant for Lucas devices, which is the automated compression device. Um, and I know there's some mixed literature as to, does it really affect outcomes? But what I think it does do, at least in our, uh, situation is that it provides that extra set of hands in, in cardiac arrest. And so we carry a Lucas device in our truck and we actually kind of modified the way we, we do ACLS uh, to try to actually put them on that device as soon as possible. There's, you know, some urban systems where they'll do two, three, four rounds of, C, you know, manual CPR and, you know, get the back plate adjusted on one round and then, you know, put on the after the second pulse check, things like that. What what we've kind of worked with our crews is to say, you know what, this is your this is almost like your third uh, provider on on scene. Let's get them on to the Lucas as quickly as possible, uh, get chest compressions going, then we can start working on some of the other things that we need to on scene with, you know, that focus on high quality CPR as quickly as possible, knowing that we are up against, um, some not so great odds, uh, if we're, you know, having a five, seven, 10, 15 minute response time, uh, that, that we're already behind the eight ball in those situations. So, uh, but we have, we have had some successes. Uh, we have had some, uh, a couple saves, uh, that, you know, I think if we weren't there or, um, you know, dispatch wasn't doing what they're doing, that uh, certainly those patients would be dead. But we have had some cardiac arrests that have uh, survived neuro intact uh, out of a rural county, which is always a great thing to see. So, well, and you also you wrote about this in resuscitation in 2016. Um, after you got your deployment of the Lucas devices, um, I know mm -hmm. you, you mentioned you received a grant from the Helmsley Foundation. Um, something I thought was really interesting, because this, this is, again, this is the debate with the, the automated CPR devices. Um, mm -hmm. in, in our area, and again, we typically talk about um, urban and suburban areas, whether or not um, using an um, automated device improves outcomes. So the debate always comes up, like, well, what if you have a long transport time? Um, which is one of the right. reasons I wanted to have you on the show, because I imagine your transport times are fairly long. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned in this article was not only um, do you transport patients with a Lucas device or an automated device, um, but you also had um, a fairly, I guess, notable amount of CPR-induced consciousness, um, mm -hmm. which I guess led to mentioning sedation for, uh, for CPRIC patients. So if you can expand on that a little bit, because I know sure, CPR-induced sure. consciousness is something that... Um, I think we were kind of taught anecdotally, uh, you know, 10 years ago when I was going through school, but it's something I think we're seeing a lot more of. So if you talk yeah. about that study a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was nothing that w it was more. Um, so basically when we had the statewide deployment of Lucas devices, we noticed this uptick in reports of uh, CPR induced consciousness. Um, and so it was this thing that was basically brought to the state EMS board of, hey, so what do we do about this? Um, and really trying to put together the the most logical and kind of educated 
uh, guess, if you will, uh, as to how to deal with this and looking at the different sedation agents. Um, certainly, if you only have EMTs and you're using a Lucas device and you have CPR-inducing consciousness, you're, you're kind of uh, rocking a hard place there. Uh, but should you have ALS, uh, what we did is we, we focused a lot on ketamine uh, in terms of its um, – properties of, you know, kind of has some, some pathobiometric properties. Um, you know, some of the literature does suggest a little bit of uh, cardiac depression, uh, especially in low flow uh, or kind of shock states, if you will. Uh, but when you compare that to other sedation agents like Versed um, uh, and, you know, things like propofol and whatnot, uh, really ketamine seemed to be kind of the best uh, go-to in this situation. And we, we had to make that decision uh, on a state level uh, with really a lack of evidence. Um, but again, it's one of those situations where your your EMS providers are coming to you after they have this great device. They're like, people are now waking up during CPR. What are we going to do with that? Um, and there was not some nice, neat, randomized control trial dealing with CPR-induced consciousness and the best thing for sedation. So it was kind of a Let's put together the best we can from the literature and uh, uh, and see how it does. So um, we, it seems to have helped at least when ALS is involved in these cases. Um, but uh, you know, it's definitely something that I think as uh, the devices uh, get more quickly deployed or more widespread, and you get that good quality CPR, you know, consistent rate depth, all the things that make up a good uh, kind of good resuscitation. Um, I think we're going to see more and more of those types of cases where people are waking up. Now, for, for, your, for your dosage of ketamine in this instance, are you just going one milligram per kilogram standard for all the patients, or do you have a protocol? Oh, that's, <laughs> there is a protocol. I don't have it sitting right in front of me. I, I think it's 1 to 1.5, if I'm not mistaken, but I, uh, I can certainly send that to you. And if you want to post that along with this uh, talk, and that way uh, I, I'm not – I think that's what it is, but I don't have the protocol right in front yeah, of sure. me. Yeah, we'll, sure. We'll throw it right up in the show. I, is, yeah. uh, we're, we're very pro-ketamine on the show. Um, yeah, oh, I love so this that's, stuff. Uh, yeah. So we've been – it's kind of like just – you know what? Just give as much as you feel like <laughs> Just, I, I tell my I tell my residents of emergency medicine. I said, you know, there's not a lot of problems that you you can give me that aren't fixed or at least helped in some way by ketamine. So, uh, yeah, the, no, big all, big, big all roads lead to ketamine eventually. So and, eventually, and but going off of that point, um, you've also published something with R.J. Frascone talking about uh, giving ketamine on scene versus Haldol when you have to consider sedation for long-term or short-term transport. Um, and again, it, given the environment that you're in, I, I know that your transports are fairly longer. So talk to me a little bit about giving ketamine versus giving Haldol for your transport times. Because I know we have a lot of patients that need to be sedated, and there's some kind right. of debate as to the proper way to sedate them for transport. So I will say... Ketamine and its use in sedation, I think, is is appropriate in a vast majority of the cases, as long as you have the proper equipment to, and and expertise to manage these patients. Um, knowing that if you do need to rescue the airway and things of that nature, I think it's okay. Um, I will tell you that the pushback and blowback from nursing, as well as the anesthesia crowd of uh, EMS using ketamine, which some of these issues you know have kind of settled by the wayside, you still occasionally get the pushback. That um, I, I think the argument for us is that. You you know, especially when we deal with nursing and whatnot, and they're like, well, how can you give ketamine? We can't even give ketamine unless it's procedural sedation in a monitored setting with ER doc in the room, et cetera. It's like, right, but you know, you as a nurse in most cases can't intubate the patient, right. uh, whereas paramedics can. So I think that's the big key uh, in being able to manage these patients. So when you look at you know, ketamine versus Haldol, uh, I think ketamine in terms of its vasoactive properties, in terms of not crashing the blood pressure, uh, as well as its time of onset. I mean, so really, uh, you know, and, and 
you as a pre-hospital provider, I, I was previously a paramedic, uh, you know, when, when you have that patient who needs to be sedated, you don't need to be waiting 10, 15 minutes for that to take a, take effect. You need it to happen sooner rather than later. Um, and so I think when you look at all the sedating agents, whether it be Versed, Haldol, Ativan, um, Atomidate, all, all those types of medications, uh, the ability to give something intramuscular and have the uh, rate of onset be what it is with ketamine, I think it, it, it lends itself to be kind of the perfect EMS drug uh, when it comes to pre-hospital sedation, uh, whether it be from from an excited delirium standpoint, uh, you know, someone's intubated and needs a little bit more sedation, um, the, the wild, combative, you know, out-of-control patient, all those things I think it, it fits nicely with, and especially in the rural areas. Uh, it, it's, such a, uh, it's such a great drug uh, in the sense that you can, you know, you can rebolus it, um, and really you're not you know, uh, losing the patient's airway most of the time and really maintain their blood pressure, which lends itself well to kind of a more rural or austere environment. Right. And so one of the, the, the pushbacks I think that comes with giving ketamine for sedation is what about emergence reactions? So yeah. <laughs> what is, what's your response generally to that criticism? Give more ketamine. Uh, <laughs> so when you, when, you, when you think about ketamine on a, on a spectrum, so you have, you know, kind of the lower end, you have the low dose for pain, and then you kind of move through uh, into kind of that mid range uh, where you, you get some of your, uh, you know, some of the, uh, recreational doses and then you get into the higher dose which is more your sedation dose and i think as you move through that spectrum as the body metabolizes ketamine um certainly as you come back through that recreational zone if you will uh and into the low dose range um certainly emergence phenomenon is documented um you know i've seen different systems if you look at like the hennepin county system in uh, minnesota and others where they will actually preemptively give a dose of versed uh in addition to the ketamine um to try to help combat that um certainly i've seen emergence phenomenon it is not a fun thing to deal with uh but there are uh, plenty of good ways that you know once you have your patients today and make sure you have a good iv you know good iv access uh and that if you need to redose ketamine or give some other agent such as versed i think that's completely appropriate and and can and quickly remedy that issue so i i i don't i don't dismiss uh emergence phenomenon out of hand but at the same time it's very manageable and i think certainly risk versus benefits uh ketamine itself i think is a far greater benefit than the risk of you know the the one in fifty or one in a hundred of the people that end up with emergence phenomenon. Well, and that was kind of the uh, the response that we always had, where you know if we're pre-hospital and we need to sedate a patient, that's what we're going to go with, and we can always give a benzo sure. on the back end, um, right? And just kind of you know I don't mean to say hope for the best, but you know I'd rather have them sedated and manageable, and then yes. deal with the other problems later on. Um, yes. I do want to talk about so, and, and we've talked about again dealing with a, a large environment. I know um, you guys were approved for a grant through the Health and Human Services Toronto Pilot Program for your regional disaster response, and I'd like to hear a little bit about that as well because I know we we talk a lot about pre-hospital care, but um, as your response environment grows, there's a more likely scenario that there'll be a disaster that everyone has to respond to. Um, certainly now, when we see more natural disasters and hurricanes coming up uh, on the East yep. Coast. Um, you know, it's interesting to talk about. So I want to hear what you're doing with that program as well. Yeah, so I think it's, uh, you know, taking a look at, uh, and as in this day and age of, you know, the whether it be a man-made or natural disaster of, uh, you know, how, how does that response look? And we, we've we've got it, you know, fairly fine-tuned. I think we're still working and improving, especially in the urban areas. And to your point, the recent uh, hurricanes, uh, you know, certainly our response has gotten better from a national disaster kind of model. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the same challenges that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and 
rural EMS, I think, are are compounded or magnified uh, to a much greater scale. If that, if, you know, if you do have that active shooter in the in the county high school, um, where you know. Uh, you have multiple casualties and, you know, some days you can barely get a squad to that location. Now you have 20, 30, 50 patients. You know, how does that look? And I think some of the uh, things that we're hopefully going to do in terms of this pilot is to to look at some of those factors of how do we leverage resources? How do we bring things in from the urban areas? What is, you know, things like flight? Uh, how does that play into it? Um, and then, you know, looking at, um you know, how do we leverage our, our volunteers and in, 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 in bringing that to bear? So um, we've actually worked locally with some uh, disasters, you know, say your school bus crash or whatnot, where you have, you know, 30, 40 patients. Um, and really, it, it's it's almost a little scary um, as to, you know, the, the response uh, that we currently have. And that, I don't think that's unique to just us. I think that you go to any rural area, and I mean, it, it can be a real, real challenge. Um, and so, you know, looking at things like doing those disaster types drills uh you know kind of the the hot washes afterwards how what can we learn um and how can we really you know increase our disaster response because you know as i tell my medics and whatnot you know some kind of disaster it's not a question in your career of of if it's more just when um and even the volunteers i mean something is going to hit your career at some point in time and how are you going to respond to that so we're really trying to look at that from a state level from a regional and and and, um resource asset utilization um and uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So the, a lot of those things are hopefully going to be discovered through that process. And and I don't know. I mean, we, we may we may come up with some answers. We may come up with more questions than we could do answers. But I think at least, you know, pushing that envelope a little bit in the more rural setting and at least to start answering some of those questions or working on those. Because um, certainly we don't have it completely figured out in the urban area, but it's certainly a lot better. So um, uh, so that's, that's hopefully what's going to happen. And is that something where you're looking to have sort of a like a standby team that's ready to go within 24 hours notice? Or is it just right now it's more just kind of ideas building on ideas? Yeah, I think it's more kind of the idea building process, uh, looking at uh, previous events, uh, doing disaster type drills, and really trying to extract from those some of the, the the learning points. I think, and some of the things that we can draw from on the urban experience, and how how do we deal with those? So I think it's more kind of fact finding at this point, and uh, generating those questions, and then and trying to find solutions once we get there. So. So one last thing that I want to talk about, um, and I, yeah. I, I want to ask you two questions. The first is sure. for um, as as it pertains to trauma transfers. Um, again, we're we're lucky enough to work in an area where almost everywhere is a trauma center or within uh, 20, 25 minutes of a trauma center. Um, mm-hmm. What is your trauma center population, and how do you guys deal with transfers just at an operational level? So, um, you know, we have similar to other states, level one down through level four trauma centers. Um, and so especially in the rural areas, a lot of critical access hospitals are designated, you know, like a level four trauma center. Um, you know, it, it truly is a challenge. Um, and, you know, the, I think, unfortunately, some of the politics and uh, local desires of, you know, people coming to the hospital. And this is kind of like what happened when, you know, STEMI care was first rolling out of, you know, do you take someone to the local hospital for initial stabilization and getting that CT scan or whatever the case may be, and then transferring? Or do we really try to make that direct transfer from the field to, say, a level, 
you know, three, level two, uh, if you have the level one within range, you know, is that better? Um, and we certainly run into some of those challenges, uh, especially within the rural areas where we've actually had uh, local hospitals say that they want to, who provide medical direction for a certain area, will actually uh, say that they want to send out a physician or a PA to the field to assess the scene uh, deter- to determine if it is warranted to have the patient, uh, you know, airlifted to, you know, directly from the scene or if they need to come to the local hospital. So um, there's definitely some challenges that I think, um, you know, uh, especially when it comes to trauma care, uh, reaching that definitive level of care is uh, can be a challenge sometimes. So, yeah, so just another it's a problem on top of a problem with no real solution. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. most certainly, most certainly. Um, and, you know, especially living in the state of Nebraska, as I'm sure you guys in the East Coast, I mean, you know, flight is great. But uh, in the dead of winter, when it's a uh, howling snowstorm, uh, that that complicates things even that much more. So, um, you know, it's not always uh, the answer is not always air. Uh, and how do you deal with that on the ground side? And I think that, you know, I think that's where the interface and the interplay comes with uh, EMS and kind of that continuum of uh, getting into those uh, critical access hospitals. So, uh, again, through the Helmsley Foundation and also through the University of Nebraska, we were fortunate enough to receive a gift to uh, have basically four simulation trucks uh, that simulate both a uh, back of an ambulance and then also a uh, like a hospital you know resuscitation room, and uh, really working on the interplay and how uh, EMS and the hospital can work you know can congruently and and helping each other out, uh, especially when resources are limited and really running through some high fidelity type simulation situations uh, to you know kind of put EMS to the test and also the critical access hospitals for patients like trauma, STEMI, stroke, things like that. So. And that's that's phenomenal. That's the hi-fi simulation, especially on the back of an ambulance, is something that I think um, is grossly underused. Um, I think conceptually in our area, it's something that we talk about a lot, but it's not really something that we apply as much as we should. Um, right. So I, I, you said that I actually got a big smile on my face from like, oh boy, hi-fi sim in the back of an ambulance. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and so, so one last thing, and this is a little bit more, um, I guess, playful and anecdotal. Um, sure. What... I, 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 we talked about this a little bit earlier in the, in the interview, but if there's one thing that you can say to us city folk um, about EMS in Nebraska, um, I guess to kind of dispel um, preconceived notions we might have, what do you think it would be? Um, that you know that the challenges are are real um and that they are you know in seeing both sides you know in myself working at a, a level one trauma center and a major receiving you know comprehensive stroke center the whole nine yards um that the, a lot of the issues that uh you know plague urban ems are magnified that much more in rural ems and i think having people that are advocates that even if they are not uh directly involved with rural ems uh whether that be helping with education training um, just remembering the folks that that do this kind of quote out in the sticks. Um, they're well-meaning people. Uh, we we try to deliver the same quality care that you would if you lived in a New York City or a, you know Boston or something like that. Uh, and that the the challenges are are certainly uh, magnified greatly. And so um, really, and I'm encouraged to see you know some of the work at the national level of really starting to start you know start focusing on rural EMS. Um, you know, and it's not as glamorous. There's not as much money. There's not as much population. But uh, ideally, you know, the folks that do this on a regular basis would would like to deliver the same care that if you're, you know, in downtown Chicago, uh, hopefully you can get, you know, as as good of care or close to it as you would if you're living out in a rural area. So, 
That's that's great. I think that's as good a place as any to end it. So Eric Ernest from the State and University of Nebraska, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really thank appreciate you. It. Appreciate it. Thanks. And thanks again to Eric Ernest for joining us today. A lot of really good things that I think we talked about. We tend to focus a lot on the urban and suburban response models. So it's really good to get a lot of insight on how a rural uh, response model will work. So I'm Ed Bowder for The Overrun. Make sure to check us out on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram. And uh, we're also available for iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, all those things. Check out The Overrun. Tell all your friends. Let us know what you think. And we will talk to you next time. 